Howdy. Hey, I'm Alan. I'm Brent. And we are here for episode 47. 47, counting down to 50. That should be this year. Yeah, I know. So what should we do for our... This is a question for our listeners. What should we do for our 50th episode? Meaning? Like anything special? Tequila? We could actually bring in the tequila <laughs> and... Before you suggest naked, Brent and I are actually naked for this podcast. Uh, and most of them prior. Yeah, most of them. <laughs> most of them. Not the one with Steve. No, no. Speedos for that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a problem with recording a podcast at 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh, you don't have enough time to get sufficient caffeine in. I know. And I was up late. I was up a little late last night trying to get a couple things done. So guess what, Brent? What? I bought myself a new car. Congratulations. What'd you get? It's a red car. It's got these cool falcon wing doors. The back doors kind of open out and up. They're pretty cool. Up and out. What makes it a falcon wing versus, say, an I owl don't know. Or that, a that, that's, that's what Tesla calls the back doors. You got yourself a Tesla. I got myself an electric car. Nice. So you already had an electric car. No, I had a hybrid car. Oh. I still have the hybrid car. I got rid of the, we had an Audi Q7, which I hated. Okay. Now there's a that story. That was your other. There's a story I didn't plan on telling. So I got a um, Prius, like I can't remember how many years ago, um, 2006, maybe 10 years ago, and I like it. I it was perfect for me. I had just enough tech to keep me excited, and, and my wife got this Audi Q7, traded in her Audi wagon, and she liked it for a while. She said, "I don't like this car anymore. We're trading." And like a good husband, I said, "Okay, yes, ma'am." <laughs> <laughs> so I drove the Q7 for a while. I didn't like it; just a little too big. For me, I don't like really big cars. Some people like driving around these big old monster trucks like Brent has or these big yeah. old, big old exhi- Ford Exhibitionist. Um, Alan's lo- <laughs> Prius could fit in the back of my car. <laughs> so I don't really <laughs> like big cars. So the thing I love about the Model X is it's a smaller car, yet it still has third row seating and it feels so much bigger inside. They really did a really nice job with the cabin. And then there's all the cool like tech, like this massive like iPad Pro-sized screen, um, which is totally distracting, which has a web browser, which you should not use while driving. No. The- it's, it's okay. The sites I wanted to go to, get your mind out of there. Um, like our VSTS site and our product site won't load on the browser. So um, I haven't figured out how to hack in there and send some different user agent strings, but I'll get into that. Is it already ready for the um, the self driving? Yeah, I, I have it. I have I have auto drive. I haven't used it yet. I'm too afraid. And you're really only only supposed to use it on the highway. And I haven't really driven it much on the highway yet. I just I just kind of drive to work and back with it. But we're taking a road trip this winter, which you really want to use um, the the auto drive, whatever it's called. It's not called auto drive. It's called something else. I don't but anyway, I'm just thinking on snowy and icy roads driving uh, in the winter, that's the best time to use it, right? Absolutely. Lying. <laughs> Absolutely. We better get in 50 before the end of the year. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. <laughs> so I'm really enjoying it. It's Of course, it has that, that massive Tesla acceleration, but it's fun to drive. Uh, the kids like it. My daughter, who's 10, said, Dad, can I have this car? I said, yes, I'm, I'm going to give it to you when you're 30. that's nice of your daughter already uh thinking six years ahead yeah anyway yeah tesla is something that i will never ever ever own because you like your internal combustion engines you want to burn some gas some fossil fuels uh someone needs to no for me in particular it's it's the the price tag so i go hmm I could get that, or I could retire a year earlier. Yep, and I was mm. thinking, I was thinking, we could not get that, or I can work one more year. <laughs> so, exact same train of thought. It's like anytime we make a big purchase, I kind of go, "Well, I'll probably have to work till I'm a little older anyway, so it's fine. I'll get bored if I don't work." Yeah, um, you got your. This is you still a, got college to to worry about. Have you, have I you do. got that handled? Um, I uh, we are saving frantically for college. Okay. We got the college savings plan going. Unless my my wife is on the we're on the total financial track here. My wife is of the mind of wherever our kids want to go to school, we will pay for it. And I'm thinking, so well, there's two financially. My 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 money picture is going. No, if they want to go to a 
Ivy League school, they better get at least a partial scholarship. <laughs> and then if you read uh, which Malcolm Gladwell book is it, I think it's Outliers, when it tells the stories of uh, these kids, like these super straight-A students go to the – and these are awesome students – get scholarships, go to these fantastic colleges, and then they – because they've, they've been used to being in the top of their class their whole life, but they're with a hundred other students that have been in the top of their class their whole life. They end up being in the bottom half of the class. They get dis- disillusioned and drop out. Mm-hmm. The best way to succeed, and because so much of this, this involves into Daniel Pink's work around motivation, is you want to go to the best school where you can be in the top part of the class. You want to go – actually, this is for everybody – you want to put yourself in an environment where you are constantly what's known as the flow, mm-hmm. where the challenge level is just out of your reach. And then as you improve y- your skill, um, that brings the challenge back into what you're capable mm-hmm. of, then there's a new challenge. If you go just way outside, it is absolutely demoralizing. I've yeah. seen this happen to so many people. Right. And you don't want to be the very top either, but you don't want to be the very bottom. There's there's psychological things that affect both parts of that. Yep. But also this ties into um, the Heffetz work, which talks about something similar to – I can't pronounce the guy's name that wrote the flow. Wrote flow. Yeah, I can't either. But uh, somebody will – Starts with a C. It. Yeah, Schimmel, Schimmel – yeah. yeah, as far as I'm going to go. Uh, but he talks about like uh, – I'll try to draw with my hands, but I can't help it. But if you are complacent, your productivity and your growth is mi- minimal to nil. If you are in completely over your head and overwhelmed, same thing. So there's a simmering point where you are challenged just enough to be uncomfortable, and that's where productivity and growth come from. Uncomfortable but still have a sense of – you need to be a little if scared. If I work a little harder, I can get there. There is a simmering point. And this is true both for uh, like in university we're talking about as well as on the job. You want to keep your employees at that simmering point. You don't want them to be complacent. You don't want them to be overwhelmed. But there's a point in between you need to find for everyone where you get the maximum productivity and growth. Yep. Wow, that actually evolved into a better conversation. It did. So uh, anyway. All so- from Tesla. Saving lots of money for college. It's all about the – so we have the nice car now. It should last for a while. Uh, We're actually on the waiting list for the Model 3, which is the cheaper version. Cheaper. (laughs) It's like like $30,000. Probably, but then if you want tires, it's it's 60. That's a (laughs) – so we're in a mark. So my wife's uh, minivan is now over 100,000. I haven't had a car reach 100,000 miles in a long time. Oh, our um, Prius has like 140 right now. But she's she's complacent, and it's, I'm just waiting for that one big ticket item where I'm like, okay, that's it. Done. Done. Um, yeah, I don't know if electric car is going to be her thing, though. All right. Anyway, I dig it. It's fun. It's got, uh, it's got the manly acceleration. It's got all the tech and stuff. So it's a fun car to drive. Cool. Cool. Shall we get on with the show? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's do it. Oh, uh, oh no, never mind. Not, yeah, getting yeah, yeah. On, not getting on with the show. <laughs> One big thing for me, which is odd, is I now have an adult-aged offspring. And, man. Did they just contact you from, like? No, no. <laughs> no, my oldest turned 18 just uh, last week. And wow. I can't transition, imagine. Is just odd. Like one one thing, Hotmail makes sense, right? But Hotmail, um, exactly at midnight, sent him a message saying he's been kicked out of the family. Which, by the way, is a weird message, but I understand why it was saying that. They, they were saying the Hotmail family feature he was kicked out because now that he's 18, dad's... Dad's rules don't matter as far as Hotmail is concerned. Ah, he can sign up for his own mailing list. Yep. All right, whatever. And who uses Hotmail anymore besides your family? Uh, What do you use? Are you Gmail? Uh, I have my own domain. Oh, right. No, I've been telling my kids, like, 
Look, until you're 18, you're off of Gmail because I know what that company does. <laughs> I'm not going to be re- morally responsible for you screwing up. <laughs> so I'm six years away from having an 18-year-old. But counting down the days because that's the, when the, the second one turns 18, it changed the locks and they're, they're done. Yeah, change the locks. Uh, start charging storage fees. For Absolutely. Their crap. <laughs> I, I tell the kids that they think I'm joking. Six, seven more years. I seven more my, years. I told my parents this um, I, I, um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I said, yeah, if, if Alex is still at home um, and not going to school a year from now, if he's at home and going to school, say if he goes to UW, then, then that's a different thing. But if he's at home and not going to school, yeah, I'm charging him rent. Yeah, my parents gave me a bill when I turned 18. Did they? Seriously? A, a joke one, but yeah. yeah. My dad said, I figured out what it cost. Here's what you owe us. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's get back to the podcast. Oh, really? You think it's time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody, it's Al. And Brent, episode 47, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> So we spent the last three episodes talking a lot about data. A ton. A ton. So let's talk about something else. Let's let's turn this conversation back on me because that's what's really important here, right? Yes. It's all about – I mean you are the A. I am the A <laughs> in A-B testing. So I want to talk a little bit about what's going on with me and my team at Microsoft. We are getting ready to be known at some point around the world. In fact, uh, maybe by the time of our next podcast, I have to look at the calendar. I can actually speak of our name. Okay. So, but in the meantime, that means we're getting ready to. I thought it was Microsoft Juicy for Business. It is Juicy. Microsoft Juicy for Business, um, Enterprise Edition. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a fun transition. This is actually a lot of things I've wanted to do on the team for a long time. Now that we're about to quote ship, uh, have become much easier. In some ways, difficult on this, but much much easier. So I want to go through those and talk about those a little bit. And then also talk about what it means to, air quote, ship in a world where you're shipping a service or an app. Maybe I'll tackle that first because there's been a cultural maybe mind shift sort of thing. And maybe you've gone through this, Brent, mm-hmm. where we have a bunch of people on the team. The team is – a large part of the team has grown up, grown up, but you know, live their business life shipping shrink rack products. We're, we're well beyond the days of going down to Egghead to buy something. Some of the kids, some of the older listeners may remember Egghead software. But it's really easy for people to think of shipping as this – think of Office app. It ships and then you have to taper down like the bugs we take and have stabilization. Then you get to the ship date and it ships. And then, then you wait and see what happens. Right. Very, very old school. I think verbally – they get that we're going to ship, we're going to announce, we're going to ship, we're going to announce a couple of days later, and then a couple of days later, we're going to ship again. Let me ask you a question. Yeah, ask a question. The, you said that your developer team, most of their experience was shipwreck products. And as you were saying that, I was thinking through the last time I was on a product like that and, oh, and or the last time I purchased a product yeah. like that and, and don't even think and of it, it feels so ancient but, but it's a it's a cultural transformation where it's not just developers it's everybody dev pm management they have this they, and they know logically that we ship and we ship like eight times a week now across because we have a bunch of microservices as well as a web front end so we're shipping like eight times a week across these things to 10 so we're shipping all the time and that's not going to stop so what's interesting is the transition of – I mean they get it like we're going to ship and then we're going to ship again later. But they haven't internalized it yet. They don't really get – The muscle memory is not there. Their muscle memory yeah. is still from the old days. So there's been a couple things that have been interesting and I should have written them down so I get them in some sort of sensible order. Or if I was a really good podcast editor, I'd splice them into the right order. But none of that's going to happen. So I'm going to speak randomly about some of the things that I'm doing, which uh, 
I feel like you're getting us in the right direction. And then Brent will tell me how I'm completely wrong. And then we'll discuss and then we'll move on to the next one. Okay. That's the plan. So one mindset shift in shipping a product is, Brent, you've been around the block. You remember shipping shrink wrap products. Yep. And one of the things is is uh, you talk about raising the bar of bugs that you'll take. <laughs> uh, don't yep. laugh. Let me finish. Yep. Yep. Let me yep. finish. Yep. There's this mindset of, well, that bug's too that bug's too minor for the risk. We're not going to take that fix. It's too risky. So we got to cut down. We can't take. We can't. Got to cut down what bugs we're taking. We're taking fewer and fewer bugs. We got to. Where does convergence come? So my line there, after a brief amount of thought, is we're going to raise a bar. But the bar we raise, I mean, we're going to because we're going to be shipping all the time. If we were to raise that bar so high before our quote ship date, our announce date, uh, what would happen after that? This flurry of okay, now the bar is up. We have to lower it at some point to let everything else in. And I don't want that flurry of crap coming in all at once. Mm-hmm. I'll get back to the flurry of crap later. So the bar of what we take doesn't change. We take everything. The bar, I'll get back to that in a minute, what that checklist is. But the bar that changes is the bar of what you have to do before that code is checked in. Mm -hmm. And this has given me a lever to pull that hasn't, uh, I haven't made traction on until now. Before to check in, as long as your manager signed off, you're good. Check it in. Woohoo! And we had insta- And we had instability. Oh, shocker! Yeah, instability in our branch. And some it didn't work. What? <laughs> some developers, of course, better than others at getting the right, doing the right due diligence before. But some people would then get in some bad code and screw it up for everyone else. So now that I'm, I can raise the bar of what goes in, what has to happen before code is checked in. So. You may remember uh, a thing at Microsoft called ask mode. Yes. Where you have to ask to check things in. And so I got a question from this is give people what they want versus what they need versus what they want. Yep. So I had our GPM and our VP come to me and say, when are we going into ask mode? We need to go into ask mode and lock things down. I thought, huh. Yeah, I guess we should go. Uh, thinking, thinking, thinking. I have a plan. <laughs> Picture the light bulb over my head. Ding. So we're in uh, ask mode. Now? Yeah. Immediately? And so, but we're in ask mode, which and ask mode means that uh, one of the PMs, not the GPM, one of the PMs that he trusts and I sit together twice a day and we review, we review things people want to check in and we either accept them or reject them. And I get to be in charge of determining what goes into the product and also through this reject things saying, no, you can't check this in without writing tests for it or no, please test this across all browsers before it goes in. So all the things they should have been doing before, if they're not doing, I can just reject them. You are... Now the PO for the product, and, the, you're, and you're doing this. What's done as the acceptance review? I'm the release engineer, acceptance review, or in the agile world, the the PO, the product owner. Yeah, yeah. So this is working. So what I'm, what I can That's do great. through that is continue to raise that bar of what goes in, and then stuff goes in better. And then something I stole from uh, Chuck Rossi, who's release engineer at Facebook. He has this idea of plenty of writing on the internet about this about developer karma. And I know none of my devs listen to the podcast, so I can talk about this, is we took 300 changes last week. Congrats. Um, which is fine. I'm happy taking 300, 500, 1,000. It'll get less. As the bar goes up, they'll have to do more work. The, that number will drop down. You also, get, keep in mind, most of these are bug fixes, so I doubt. I think 300 will be our peak. Usually, it'll be much far, far fewer. But... There were one, two, three, four changes that we took out of those 300 that caused a product regression because they didn't do the proper testing and I signed off anyway. I didn't recognize it. Okay. So Chuck Rossi does this thing called developer karma where in his case, it's a four-star system. Everybody starts with four stars and you lose half a star if you screw something up like that. Okay. So I'm gonna, I won't give the exact numbers, but I'm going to use a 10-point scale, and people are going to start somewhere in the upper middle half of that, and they'll lose or occasionally gain points if they're super awesome. Like, 
like imagine like I I made this small change, but I noticed the unit tests were all screwed up, so I wrote another fifty to uh, cover any further regressions in this entire file. I might give them a point of developer karma, and then when things get really risky. I want to look at the change, the risk of the change, match that with your developer karma and go, no, you're going to need to do more here. Or I can trust you. Yes, this is fine. Brent's rolling his eyes a little bit. Well, so I like, I like the, I definitely like the gamification aspect of, of this. I'm curious around the the finger pointy or no, the so, trust of the risk aspect. So of this. The, one of the things, and that's a good point, and two things to keep in mind. One is I haven't done anything with this list yet, and two is this won't be a list I ever share, and I won't say no, you can't check this in because your karma's too low, but it will give me, as I'm looking in the PO role, looking at these changes coming in, I might go, well, Fred has had a history of, of regressions. This is high risk, and I don't feel like I've had the right people code review this. Let me push this back and get a little bit more information. I'm going to make his bar a little higher and hopefully make him a little bit, uh, through that, teach him to be a little bit more careful about his check-ins. Yep. So, But I'm never going to share that list and stack rank him. Uh, Ever? Uh, I may bring the knowledge of those, not the list, but the knowledge of what I've learned to a people review. Gotcha. I think that's a given, but but overall, I want to teach the uh, devs that the bar they have to ch- the developers the bar they have to meet to check in code is going to go way up over time. So once we become announced, I want to do two things, uh, and I'm all over the board here, but it will make sense. One is that bar will be high enough, like everything that goes in is well tested and or behind a feature flag. Mm-hmm. And for people not familiar with feature flag, that means that this feature is fully checked in, but there's no way for you to use it. Developers and dog food users can turn it on, and we have a flooding system where you can turn those things on for a select set of users. You can gather data about how that's working with a select set of users and get that information. And Brent's staring at his phone. Just turning off random. All noises. right. Sure, 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 sure. Anyway, uh, things behind feature flags. Uh, should go in and it should not affect the rest of the product. And so I forgot where I was no, going. The, the nice thing with feature flags as well is that if if um, you, you release it and an undiscovered regression down that code path, it's relatively easy to say, okay, turn this off. Yeah. Right? The, um, the thing I like about what you just described, and actually when, I, um, when I'm in the role of a, of a PO – Biggest, the biggest um, principle I, I get across is essentially, look, you guys can check in whatever you want, but the main build must always be RTMable. Right? You can check in whatever you want, but we have to be able to ship it at any time. You guys don't get to control the ship date. Like uh, My favorite teams is where I get engineering out of the business of influence the ship, the ship date. That should be a business team only decision. Mm-hmm. But the only way to do that is to make sure that that main build, or that main tree is always shippable. So let me tell you another story about what we're doing and what's changing. Yep. So right now, we are the canonical example of mini waterfall. So, Skirmerful? so let me let me describe what I mean by that. So we have our services are pretty good, so, uh, let, but our front end is the most error prone part of our product. Uh, user facing more, at least more noticeable, more visible problems, and also the largest. So what we do now, what we've done up to this point, is once a week we take our develop branch, which is where all this churn was going on uncontrolled, and we take a snapshot of it to a pre production branch. And we test it and dog food it there for half a week, a week or so, and then release that rinse, lather, repeat. What I wanted to do, uh, originally when I described this, I just wanted to go just get – I don't like that pre-production branch. I wanted our develop branch to be high enough quality. We could just take it to production uh, and have it be less of a moving target. That scared the crap out of people. I said, no, we need our pre-production branch. We have to – where do where do we – Bake things. 
So uh, the compromise I made is that this whole continuous deployment thing is so, such a long haul to to get it people is, to shift. It is, but I feel like now I'm on the path there because I wanted to jump like skip a step, but mentally and psychologically they weren't ready to lose the safety net of pre-production. So uh, I backed off a little bit and said, "Okay, we're going to keep doing." I said, "No, actually, I put it this way." I said, "Never, never mind." I misprint on my part. Of course, we'll continue to have a pre-production branch. We will continue to snap that and test that. Uh, but the quality of our developer branch should increase over time. We'll, over time, doing what we're doing. And what I expect to happen is, is I will do that. We will take a snap. But it turns, but already seeing advances there in, in one week of this, but. I imagine another few weeks to a month at the most, and our develop branch will be of better quality than our pre-production branch ever was. And once we get to the point where develop is that good, I might just say, oh, you know what? Gosh, this is actually good enough to ship. Let's go ahead. And and also because we have rings of deployment, let's go ahead and take what's in develop. And and we're just going to ship that to uh, our first ring of deployment and see how things go. And we'll look at data. We'll look at bug reports. And, and, we'll, and we'll just roll things out through rings and see how things go and, and roll back as we need to. So that so that will happen probably. I think you'll in still the have the, the, the safety net discussion then. I think the safety net is what we call ring zero. Yeah, no, I, I completely yeah. agree. Of course you know that. Um, <laughs> th- th- this isn't a, a technical problem anymore. This no, is, no, 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 no. Is... There are technical problems getting the rings right and getting deployment. And there is one technical part of the problem, but there's get to next. But you're right. It's getting people used to the mindset of that we're shipping. And things like the bar we're moving is what has to be done before it goes in. That's part of it. The bar that... Uh, we don't need that safety net if we're using rings of deployment, which are also new. And some of these people have worked on web products before, but they haven't – for some reason, they didn't do rings of deployment. They flipped a switch and it went to the world. There aren't, there aren't many teams that I'm aware of at, at Microsoft even today that are doing deployment rings. So it is my responsibility, and there are testers uh, in the world that say – Testers, get out of the QA business. You shouldn't be making the business decisions on when to ship. But I make the business decision on when to ship. It's my it's my call from a quality perspective, and so I make that call. Uh, I am scared to death now. When we were shipping to a hundred people, five hundred people, a thousand people, flip the switch. I'm okay. Right now, we have ten thousand daily active users, and without rings of deployment, you want me to flip that switch? And we're gonna we should be at a hundred thousand, and probably up over a million in the next few months. And do I want to flip that switch for all of them at once? No. My blood pressure goes up just thinking about it. Yeah. No. You, you, will, you will definitely need that to mitigate risk for sure. I was thinking through your other problem. And I think the way I might try to approach that would be to, uh, hey, guys, Here's my numbers on the dev branch. Here's my numbers on the pre-prod branch. Um, here's the number. Does it go dev, pre-prod, then prod? Yep. Okay. So here's the the regressions that have this, have been escaped, in other words, found in production. Um, here's the cost of the, of the pre-prod. And try to weave a story that says pre-prod is – or try to la- weave the analytics such that any brain-dead monkey looking at this would say there's no ROI for pre-prod. But then present it to your dev team and just simply say, all right, guys, here's a bunch of numbers. We're doing really effectively on this. Now, what, do, what changes do we do to ship faster? And try to try to set the stage so that your your dev managers are the ones that go. We don't need pre prod anymore. Yeah, right. It'll, it'll be fun to get there. I I'm excited about because there, there's a few people that one by one they kind of get it, and there's excitement that comes like holy, holy cow. And I've had people come to me. This is the biggest compliment I've ever gotten at Microsoft. I had one of our EMs come to me and says, "I feel like we're shipping like 21st century software." Which is rare at Microsoft. Yeah. <laughs> now, when I first experienced um, 
continuous deployment, particularly in the Kanban model, like where where each of my guys could be shipping. If you have a large enough team, at least one of your guys is is quote unquote shipping something every day, right? And when I realized how much risk was mitigated by being able to ship small things oh, that continuously I ra- integrate. I would rather ship 20 times a day than once a week. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I remember that moment like yesterday. I'm like, oh, this is what this does. Yeah, and there's it's funny. There's one developer on the team, one, a man, one of my peer managers who has been, yeah, I want to get to CD. I want to get to CD. And then I gave him my original plan, uh, and he goes, uh, this is a little scary. The team isn't going to buy onto this. So even he was a little hesitant. And, and he was right. This is a uh, definitely a case where boiled frogs needs to be done. But I, have a, I feel like I have a good plan in place. It's coming along. A couple other things I wanted to talk about. Okay. One is our developers write two different kinds of tests. We have um, some unit tests which uh, run against a headless browser, currently PhantomJS, but uh, I think we're going to switch to headless Chrome here shortly once it's officially available. Those tests are great because they they run super fast and they, and they find a lot of functional regressions, even in the web front end. But knowing that we can't find many issues through those unit tests, we also write some almost UI tests. You know my... You know my uh, Opinion on UI tests, but there's Selenium. Yeah. There's Selenium tests, which I know many people who've had very good success writing non-flaky Selenium tests. Ours are not non-flaky. There are, but they're not super flaky. They're slightly flaky Selenium tests, and that's what we have pretty much right now for testing behavioral and functional correctness. So there's a couple. As some EMs come to me and say, "Okay, after we ship again, after the ship date, we want to double down on writing a lot more scenario tests." And my answer to them, so my strategy here is sort of three-pronged or one-prong with three curves. I don't know. But at that level, UI testing, you know, you saw my blog post on, not you didn't, but you did. I did. Uh, <laughs> you, the listeners, you did. On gooey schmooey, i really leery of UI tests. And again, Selenium tests work a, sort of at the object model, so they're a little bit more reliable. But they're very difficult to get correct, but not impossible. So I would rather, uh, and I have one of the people on my team working on making sure that the scenario tests we have are just rock solid, not flaky, and also teaching the dev team how to write those tests. Certainly possible that's going to happen. But I think as far as writing those scenario level tests, that's the third thing I want to do. So the bottom thing I want to do is, yeah, sure, we need more of these. We call them scenario tests, these selenium tests, these end-to-end tests. Sure, we need a few more of those to cover some gaps, and they need to be rock solid. That's the third level of investment. But I wouldn't second level investment. I wouldn't double down on No, 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 no. That is bot- that is number 3 in the stack rank. Yeah. Number 2 moving up is uh, because I believe in that tight dev what we call the inner loop at Microsoft, I want more unit tests. Uh great safety net against regression. Uh you yes, sure you can't find everything there, but we need a lot more of those only mainly because they run super fast. And they're generally super reliable. We've, in fact, I can't think of a case in the last year where we've had a unit test fail that wasn't due to uh, uh, faulty code. Like the tests aren't flaky. So, if, so I want to, if we're going to double down, it's there, but I don't want to double down there either. What I want to do, this goes back to what we were talking about three episodes ago. I said, no, I want you guys, we have a lot of, now we have a lot of BI telemetry in the product. We can tell what users are doing. So what I want you to do now is use telemetry to tell me whether things are passing or failing. And then we're going to write Selenium tests that don't, this is taken strictly from Brent, that don't try and be the Oracle, which is very, very hard to do. Just exercise the product and use the telemetry to figure out whether things passed or failed. Yes. And when we get some of that in place, now I have even more confidence to roll through rings and look for failures. So they, they're, they're on board with that. Sweet. So that's going to happen. It I will would, happen very slowly. But I'm pushing down like this emphasis on these end-to-end tests. I think putting more emphasis on the right mo- like diagnostic telemetry and then the unit test for that inner loop and then scenario test for some, for some frosting on top. Let me give you a, uh, a potential rallying cry. We, we, we've talked about – I love the- rallying cries. 
We've talked about this in the past. Oh, God. Take a shot. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> um, ah, um, <clears throat> rallying cries are critical to, to – or not critical, but extremely helpful in solving these in the, these um, non-technical but appear to be technical but are actually people problem problems. Weinberg – it comes back again. It's always a people problem. Yes. Here's what I would suggest to you. Right? We have these deployment rings. We have these feature on-off switches. I would suggest that what you want, say in six months' time, is a system that automatically turns off or on features based off the telemetry being reported. I like that. We'll get to that. But yeah, automatic stuff. So right now, another part of this change is I make the call on whether to ship. Yep. But when I make that call, I go to our SRE, our system reliability engineering team. And I say, okay, go ahead and flip the switch. And they, they actually do the deployment of, uh, the deployment and watch for their monitoring dashboards and figure out when to roll back. Yeah. They actually do the deployment and watching and monitoring. So they're my automation right now. They are. (laughs) But what I'm saying is if you use that as a rallying cry and say auto on off, then, um, so what, what you're at right now is where the DevOps, where the DevOps will progress next is, uh, if you let it go this way, six, nine months from now, that team's going to be flooded by uh, crappy TSG docs. <laughs> yeah, they already are. <laughs> and uh, I don't remember what TSG stands Troubleshooting guide. Right, for our three listeners. Um, <laughs> so they're going to be flooded by that. And uh, you run the risk of your developers um, focused on now bugs and features viewing uh, instrumentation as a second-class citizen and and basically saying, hey, I wrote that TSG jock. It's now DevOps problem. Right? The, the, this whole idea of it's not my job uh, unfortunately never dies. Um, but if you can begin the path of saying, hey, we need to have – this telemetry, you guys need to be accountable for making sure the telemetry is such that it is being used to correctly turn off or on features as it goes through mm-hmm. these deployment rings. Then these DevOps guys are just looking for this new what just got turned on or off signal. Yeah, definitely right. want to get there. Great rallying cry. And we have actually a good set of uh, BHAGs on my team about getting some of these things done. BHAGs? The BHAGs are the big, hairy, audacious goals. What <laughs> okay. book is that from? That's from, oh, God, uh, I forget which book it's from. A book I read like 10 years ago. Okay. Sounds cool. Anyway, definitely want to get there. But it's fun because a lot of these things I've wanted to do for a long time, but the the to circle back to the beginning of this conversation is the process of becoming a public app and, and quote, shipping, whatever that means – uh, has allowed me to finally get over the edge on many of these things. It's like now people see the reason or I have a way to roll these things out. One last thing to talk about is uh, a lot of this stemmed from a doc I wrote on our branching strategy. People asked me, in the traditional Microsoft world, what you do is you would create, getting close to shipping, you create a release branch. And then everybody would party on the old branch, and then you try and merge them back together after you release. Hatred. What that would mean in a product like this is we would, quote, ship, and we would never ship again. <laughs> or for not for months, we'll try to get everything to merge back correctly. Right. So, again, I said right off the bat, we ship out of develop. And so what do we do with our – what about the our stuff that's not going into our V1 launch? I said, well – if it's behind a flag, check it in. If we really don't want it till later, uh, maybe it's a for whatever reason, uh, do it in your branch. They go, well, well then how do I merge this? I teach them how to use Git. 
<laughs> so what I've found another interesting thing here. I've I've you know I've worked in Windows-ish products for a lot of my career. So I'm and I'm sort of a command line guy. My first automation ever was lots and lots of batch files. I've had to give multiple tutorials on the team on how to use the Git command line because they use like Visual Studio and, and my rule with Git is never trust the GUI tools. Just use the command line. There is a couple of GUI tools know. on I top of Git that are fantastic. I don't, I don't trust. Yeah, the command line, at least on Git. So I'm usually a GUI guy, oh, but when loser. it comes when it comes to source control management, um, I'm definitely a command line guy right now because I I need to be sure that I'm doing exactly what I think I'm doing and. Uh, a lot of the GUI tools on particular Git, for me, it's confusing. I just want to make sure that they are have a merge plan and pattern that will help them be successful in a branch. And one of the things that I worry about and they rightfully worry about is, well, how long do I keep this stuff in a branch? And I don't like long-running long branches, although with the right plan, you can keep things merged and in sync with the develop branch. So, you're not, so when you have to merge back, it shouldn't be a problem. Those things are possible. But again, feature flags, fr- merge to develop frequently behind a flag. Get your code in there if you're worried about things diverging too much, but get it behind a flag. But you're going through is risk retraining. Yeah. Right? The people yeah. above <laughs> yeah. you know the rules. That's a great of, term. I like that. For, for managing risk. And they're like, this is too, right? It, the concepts of ask mode and... Well, I call it ask mode. It's just, it's just release management. No, but it's ask mode. <laughs> right? I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you, if someone above you recently has talked about bug jail or any nope, of these... No, nope, so- bug jail hasn't come up. In fact... One thing that's come from this is I should talk about one other thing is we have still, I believe in the popcorn popper theory of shipping software mostly. So the popcorn popper theory is you've made popcorn before Mm -hmm. and whether it's the microwave or Jiffy pop, same metaphor works. The popcorn's popping like crazy where it's work coming in. Pop, 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 pop. Bugs coming in. We're going to fix those right away. Pop, pop, pop. And the end, it starts popping slower. Pop, 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 pop. And there's a fine line between getting the most popped kernels and burning your popcorn and yep. that's when you ship so we have an income we're still popping not super hard popping a reasonable amount but we're but our fixed rate is higher than our incoming rate it's it's all good but one thing has come from this is for a long time i've been trying to get to i was close a, little, a while back and then things went off the rails of of how many old bugs we have and right now we are almost on top of keeping our Basically, our bugs older than three days at zero. We have like 15 right now. Good. So my goal, and the again, buy off on this, is we get that to zero, we keep it to zero. And the line I'm using to explain it is if as long as fixed rate exceeds accepted rate, we, it, that indicates – so the number of bugs we're fixing is more than the number we're coming in. That indicates that we can take on more feature work. Yes. <laughs> now, I, I would, I wouldn't approach it that way, but that's fine. The way I approach it is bugs take precedence, and when the bugs Absolutely. are dead, yeah, then you use your available resources for potato, potato. feature work, right? Right. Um, it's that, been great, though. The point is that getting to this point and trying to working with their definition of shipping versus my definition of shipping. Uh, we've been able to get that number close to zero and, and with the goal of getting it to zero. So I feel good about that. And once and then with the added dynamic of we're shipping all the time after that, they understand the importance of keeping that at zero. Yes. You were talking about deployment models. Have you, Did you ever go and look up? It, it's all uh, public domain knowledge. Uh, the safe version of... The deployment it's, model? I read through that a long time ago, maybe a year, year and a half ago, but I don't remember it. In a nutshell, version 3.0 of SAFE, there's now a 4.0, so I, I haven't reviewed the 4.0 
content. And they make big changes as they learn new things and learn better strategies. There's essentially three branches, maybe four. Four. We'll go with four. There's the, the private dev branch on their machine. Then there's the official dev branch. Then there's the integration branch. And then there is the RTM branch. Okay. So devs continuously taking it from their their personal machine branch and integrating into the dev branch. And in the safe model, um, you have two-week sprints, and then you have a system integration team. And two-week sprints, the dev team uh, then demos at the end of that sprint. Uh, this is easily adaptable to more of a Kanban model. I'm just ex- communicating it from a Scrum model. Every two weeks, dev then demos what they are checking into the dev branch. Okay. The system integration team, their job is to um, the weeks where the dev team isn't demoing, the system integration team is demoing the off weeks. So devs going every two weeks. So then it would be dev demo, system demo, dev demo, system demo. You follow? I get, I get it. Okay. Yeah. The system integration team is then accepting these check-ins, these change lists, and they will take a change list at a time, integrate it into their integration, and determine whether or not that gets rejected or moves up to the RTM branch. Anything that gets rejected, the integration branch gets reset to the current version of the RTM branch. And then the next change list is incorporated and quickly tested. So then what ends up happening in this case is your RTM branch is always RTM. And um, this integration team, their purpose in life is to reject as fast as possible. So they're highly focused on proving that this didn't integrate correctly, but as fast as possible. So you don't see, much like you were talking about with these scenario tests, you see these scenario tests um, uh, trying to be lean, uh, highly focused, enabled lean this this code to filter through. Um you don't want to be overly pedantic on on um, blocking regressions because then you just turn into a waterfall team with this. Yeah, this this is. I get how it works. It seems a little waterfally. Um, but I get I get how it's not and how it maybe is. There's a lot more structure in up on the safe documentation in terms of how to how to assure that this doesn't become a waterfally process. Um, the role of this branch is primarily to um, enforce dev's behavior of what you expect from the lower branches. Okay. I get it. I'm, I'm going to read through it because you know, I have a plan now that I like, but I'm always looking at adjustments as needed. This model, along with the idea of a, a feature keys, I think is a is a good way of blocking risk. All right, so this is a nice segue. So we talked about everything from the dev side, release engineering. We haven't talked about uh, a little bit sort of the PM role in this. So I want to jump to that, and then and to kick that off, we'll do that from the mailbag. So on the Slack channel. One of the three dot slack dot com. Yes, let us know if you're not a member. Let us know, and and we'll add you to it. There's a lot of great content, a lot of great questions that don't appear on the air. We have a new member on the Slack channel, Marcus. Welcome, Marcus. And he asks, "I'm working with a team that is totally on board with going to a more sustainable quality model, such as unified engineering." Though the PMs are more conventional and want to know how much longer it will take for features if devs are testing and prioritizing bugs over feature dev. 
They really want to be able to plan a soft launch and set expectations with leadership and are unfamiliar with continuous delivery and no shutdown uh, polish phase at the end. Do you have any experience, advice on how to tackle this? <laughs> I, I think we've probably both been through this. I, I'm still in it now. RPMs on my team still very much live in the must plan. Let's look at capacity and we'll plan for that. And they try and put in, and they do a reasonable job. They put in test work as part of the, the monthly backlog as, along with the dev work. There's a couple things wrong with that. And I'll let you have probably a lot better ideas here, but what's the quote? Predicting things is hard, especially about the future. Yes. So I think test estimates tend to be just as inaccurate as dev estimates. But unfortunately, what happens if uh, what I've seen is you when the dev estimates go haywire, they just go, OK, we're not going to get to the test work. <laughs> not always in some cases. So um, the challenge in that transition to me is well, going from. So, by the way, that was actually one thing that's interesting, right? Because the PMs are saying, how much longer is it going to take to produce these features if dev owns the testing, right? They, um in the prior world, right, if tests owning the testing, it's all, um, right, you're just shifting who's doing the work. Right. The same work's uh, happening. The same work's happening, right? But now PM has this view it's going to take longer. And I think that's interesting because um, it almost articulates a belief that I believe PMs have had. I don't need tests to ship. <laughs> so now what what's happened is this this – Hot path to ship has been eliminated from from PM's repertoire. It's no longer in their toolbox. Yeah. My all that's true. Right. And I don't know if you're going to uh to answer the question or try try and answer it. I don't think you without actually doing any of the testing or any of the development, I don't think you're gonna know how much longer it takes. This is why we do iterations and learn from them. So Pick a chunk of work that you think can fit into a two-week iteration. You know, stack rank so it gets done in order, and which includes things being test complete, and see how long it takes. See what your, your what your throughput is for if things are to be completely developed and done. The completely agree, right? Um, the 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 first thing is to measure the in Kanban the. The thing I really like about Kanban is essentially once work starts in two weeks, once work starts in between now and two weeks from now, that work will be completed. That's, that is a commitment that my team has made. But with PM engagement, they, they are often more concerned with, well, right, but I want to know when this item that's 10 two weeks iterations from now is going to be done because I need to set commitments. With operating, the this is another one of those paradigm shift changes where people are um, used to setting and resetting expectations on a six-month cadence. And what I found is once I get can get them to trust my model – the, the, the way I'm going to execute differently and realize that they can trust that that cadence, um, then PMs will sh- turn over and find out that this model is actually more valuable to them. The challenge with their model is they want to set expectations for six months from now, but in one month from now, when we realize that there's this P2 thing that we now have to do, um, because of the learnings of what we just shipped, their model doesn't account for really changing these downstream it, expectations. It really creates the world where you're trying to compress features into a much tighter timeline than you should. Um, so another shift that happens that's been interesting for me to observe is uh, – the traditional PM is 
you know, they want to own the feature and the schedule and be and and the coordination and all these things. There's much less of that to do in the new world. I just turned the corner now where um, uh, RPMs. What I tell RPMs is you can make sure you understand what the features are based on cut, not what you think is cool or not what the VP thinks, but customer you know <laughs> feedback, and then groom and and reprioritize that backlog. We can't. There's no way we can predict what we're going to do three months from now, but if that, you know, you basically can figure out our throughput and you can figure out uh, the prioritized backlog and get an idea of when things will show up. But we need to, part of the shift is getting out of the habit of thinking you actually know what you're going to be doing three months from now. The challenge is, is a lot of these PMs have been making promises, right? And that's the thing that you got to, what they view is a commitment, A PM who owns delivering to your team feature requirements, um, who doesn't own the schedule, can actually be more harmful. But you have to get rid of that if you want to get out of the waterfall world. What I mean by more harmful is, okay, now I just deliver feature requirements. I have no accountability to the schedule. Therefore, that's your problem. Figure it out. Right? Which is not... You want them invested in the overall team's success, not just be the guy on the hill um, making demands. Yeah. Going back to safe, the thing I found that works best for me in terms of getting them aboard on the journey is uh, what's known as WSJF, weighted shortest job first. And I basically say, hey, we can adjust my schedule every week. Once a week, we can adjust it, um, but only on the work that my team hasn't started. So if they've started it, that's going to go to completion. In terms of the next stuff that's up, you can change that how you feel with one condition. I want to make sure that we are in agreement that this next set of list is the highest ROI which means business value that we predict over the estimated cost. Okay. Right? So they bring, they bring the business value equation. There's a way to objectify this. I bring in the cost equation. We have a discussion, and then we, um, we iterate, and we try to do this on a weekly basis. Cool. Yeah. So I'll loop back to the question real quick. Uh, I guess we're talking about the question. One blunt way to answer the question is going back to what you said is it's the same amount of work done by different people. So how much longer will it take to ship? It, On one hand, it should take exactly as long because the same work is happening. On the other hand, it could take longer if developers are learning how to test. But on the other hand, the game of, of what I call bug ping pong, where the developer says, here's my code. Tester says, here's a bug. Developer says, here's a fix. Tester says, didn't work. That ping pong game is very inefficient. And if you get rid of that, it should take less time to ship. So the so it all boils down to iterate, learn, and repeat. I think in the long run, it's faster. But as things come up, as people learn things, there may be some time in the first few uh, sprints where it's, it takes longer. In the first few sprints, it will it will take longer. Uh, the best advice I have in this particular situation, uh, particularly if you're going to go with a unified engineering model, is essentially give – man, I, I blogged about this. Maybe we, I could dig that up. You give the dev team a 75 – 25% rule. You give the test team a 25 – another 75 25% rule. And then you give uh, – the the new leadership teams in this unified engineering model a timeline where you expect both the dev and test to to come to a 50-50 now what the hell am i talking about dev i wonder that every time we talk dev your job is going to be 75% dev 25% learning how to improve your testing from the get go test your job is going to be Teaching dev how to do testing and 25% how to do coding. And the trick for a manager in, in this aspect is to figure out an aggressive but achievable flow 
going back to bookending our topic, such that these guys merge their skill set and their knowledge into one amorphous unified engineering blob. They both need to teach the other side how to grow and become a unified team. Perfect. I hope that answer is good, Marcus. Yes. All right. I'm still Alan. And I am Brent. We'll see you next time for episode 48. Bye, guys.